wish everybody wanted to stay and hear me preach as much as he does. <laughs> Man, isn't it good to just sense what the Lord is doing amongst his church? We've been paying attention in recent days. God, it seems to be sparking something within his people. It's beginning on college campuses and seminary campuses. Asbury has been in the news. It's not just in Asbury. It's other places around our nation where young people are sensing God stirring their hearts and moving them to prayer and confession of sin and just a a movement back to him. Uh, If you look back in church history, specifically American church history, you'll see that every move of God has, every major movement of God has started with young people. Kids, in their, we call them kids. Back then they were young adults, but teenagers, young adults getting started in life. God began to stir something there. And so we're seeing that in different pockets around our nation and even in our own community. I'm just blown away with what the Lord seems to be doing amongst this church here in this community. And here at Red Lane and, and other churches in our area, God just seems to be doing something. And that gives me uh, encouragement because I don't know about you, but the the days can be hard and the days can be difficult that we're living in. And we're so inundated with what, thing, what seems to be a culture that wants nothing to do with God. And, and yet to see God moving, to know that he's not finished with us is a great encouragement. So I'm so excited about what the Lord continue to, continues to do right here amongst this people, his people. And I hope you are as well. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to... Uh, Luke chapter 9, as you're finished, f- finding your place there, not finishing your place there, but finding your place there, let me just add to what I was just saying. I, I had an opportunity to be with the lieutenant governor this past Tuesday in a, in a conference room with a, about 10 or 12 other pastors and ministry leaders across the state of Virginia, and uh, just to sit with her and to hear from her, I'm deeply encouraged to know that God still places people in, in positions that can influence the culture. The church is largely responsible for that. God in his grace and God in his providence has put people, uh, and this is not a political speech, but it was so encouraging to hear from Lieutenant Governor Tuesday morning and to hear about her faith, to hear how much she loves the Lord Jesus, to hear her conversion story, to, to hear her understanding the knowledge of the word of God and how she relates it to the positions that she holds. She made this statement. She, taking Romans 13, and understanding that God puts people in positions of authority, governmental positions, she understands her role as that of standing and holding the line for what is righteous. And I was deeply encouraged to hear that here's a woman who loves the Lord, who believes his word, who will stand on it in the face of opposition. And, and so God is doing that in his church. He's doing it among young people across our nation. And he still has people within the political realm of our country who will hold the line and say, this is righteous and that is unrighteous. And we need to be a people that believe the word of God. And, and that's what we are here at Red Lane. So Luke chapter 9, I want to speak to this subject this morning, just simply this, faith. I want us to look at this idea of faith, this concept of faith that we see throughout the Word of God, and specifically here in this passage that we're going to look at in verses 37 through 45. Several years ago, you probably remember this story, making the headlines and being on the news programs. On October 13th of 2010, 
33 miners in northern Chile were rescued after spending more than two months underground. These miners worked in a copper and gold mine, and that mine collapsed back on August 5th of that year. They're trapped for 69 days, nearly half a mile underground, until the day they were rescued. After that collapse took place, those 33 men, uh, which ranged in age from 19 to 63, moved to a, a, a location, an emergency shelter area within that mine shaft that had a limited supply of food and water. They were not able to communicate with anyone on the surface, even though they believed and trusted that emergency officials were beginning their rescue. On the surface, there were engineering mining experts coming from all over the world who began to formulate a plan and work tirelessly to free them. On August 22nd, rescuers were able to drill a small hole traveling from the surface all the way down 2,300 feet to where the miners were located. Not long after, the men sent up a note into, into that shaft that simply said this, we are fine in the shelter, the 33 of us. They bored a hole open, which opened up communication, and rescuers were able to send down food and water and medicine. The men were also able to send up video messages to their families, many of those families who were living on site during those 69 days. While the miners were underground, Elizabeth Sergovia, the wife of one of the trapped miners, gave birth to a young girl, and she named that young girl Esperanza, the Spanish word for hope. On October 13th, more than two months later, the miners were lifted safely, one by one, through that small shaft. They had uh, put a capsule in there that went down to pick up one, each, each of them coming up individually. The color of that shaft symbolized the flags of the Chilean nation. It took 23 hours to lift them to safety, and more than a billion people, us, watched it on television as it unfolded. When you think about how desperate of a situation that was for those miners and their families, I wonder how it was possible for all of them to remain positive throughout the duration of that time. The fact that one of their newborn daughters was named Esperanza, named Hope, ought to give us a clue as to how they were able to remain positive. They had hope. They had hope in the people who were above. They had hope that there was a rescue being planned. They had hope that it was grounded in the faith that the ones up there planning the rescue would come to their rescue. When you think about faith, we know that it is a powerful thing. It seems to have been what kept these miners grounded during those desperate and difficult days. From a spiritual standpoint, the Bible tells us that faith is a powerful as well as a necessary ingredient for salvation. Paul told the church in Rome this, the righteous shall live by faith. He told the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, and without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. And so faith is powerful. The Bible makes it clear. However, we must ask a question in addition to that. Not only do we know that faith is powerful, but we got to step back and say, what is faith? You know, that term is thrown around a lot in our culture. People use it all the time. And so what exactly is faith? See, it's if faith is necessary for one to be forgiven of all sin and accepted into God's family, then we as those who would seek to be people of faith need to know what faith is so that we might exercise it in our lives. And so what is faith? 
I heard a definition of faith when I was a teenager. My pastor growing up was influenced tremendously by uh, an old 20th century uh, Southern Baptist evangelist by the name of Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley defined faith like this. He says, faith is to believe something is so when it is not so in order for it to become so. It's believing it is so when it's not so in order for it to become so. I believe Manly Beasley was probably expanding upon Augustine's description of faith. He said this, faith is to believe what we do not see. And the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. I believe both men were pulling from what the Word of God says from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. You skip down to verse 6 and it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We read through the Bible, we see that it never portrays faith as some sort of abstract belief disconnected from an anchor point. The Bible is not telling us to faith into faith, to faith into some sort of abstract idea or concept that even would be some sort of anchor. So we're not called to just have faith, we're to have faith in something, better yet, someone. The Bible portrays faith as this concrete belief that is anchored to an object. Believers are called to put their faith in God and put their faith in his word, what he said. As we move on in the next step in our journey through the Luke gospel of Luke, Luke's gospel here, faith is the theme. Faith is what Jesus is pointing the disciples to. Faith is what he's pointing the crowd that he's going to address to. We see here that the Son of God is the anchor of this faith. This morning from these verses, we will learn a few things about what faith does not do. And I want to share share with you a few things that faith does do. Ultimately, what I want us to see this morning is that spiritual faith is connected to Jesus and nothing else. The Bible's not calling us to have faith in ourselves. The Bible's not calling us to have faith in others. The Bible's not calling you as a child of God and us as the people of God to have faith in the church. It's not calling us to have faith in the gospel in itself. No, it's calling us to have faith in Jesus and his gospel and what he's done for us in our lives. And so my prayer is that wherever you're at spiritually, whatever that condition is this morning, you will move closer to the Lord Jesus through faith. And so look with me as we begin reading in verse 37. Luke says this, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus, in verse 41, answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. As Luke has told us, Jesus and his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been up on the mountainside. They have now just returned from this short trip. They were away, and while they were away, they experienced the kingdom of God. That night before, while Jesus was praying, Luke tells us what we, the passage we looked at last Sunday, that, that as he's praying, that his clothing became dazzling white. Uh, Matthew tells us that his face sh- shone like the sun. It was as bright as the sun. And in that moment, what we are seeing here is that Jesus' deity began to push through his humanity. And his glory was on full display as Moses and Elijah are conversing with him. They're talking with him about his departure. Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus, and they watched this spectacle, and they experienced the kingdom of God in all of its glory. They got to catch, they, they got uh, to catch a glimpse of something we long to see, and we can't wait to see. I mean, think about what it's going to be when Pastor Trevor was reading that verse from Revelation 5, that, that speaking of things that are going to come, we're going to get to stand around the throne room of heaven, and we're going to get to ascribe glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and see him in all of his deity. That's going to be a glorious moment. And Peter, James, and John are on the mountain, and they get to experience a piece of this. And so surely the next morning as they're descending the mountainside, can you imagine the conversation that's taking place? Theology was saturating that conversation. They're probably asking question after question after question, and Jesus is answering these questions to them. We kind of get a a picture of that. We kind of get an allusion to that through John and Peter's writings later on as they talk about the glory of God and talk about this experience in, in their writings. It was a glorious moment for them as they descended. Upon arriving, however, at the base of the mountain, back at the place where they had left the other nine disciples, they see that a crowd had gathered and the scribes were there and there's an argument taking place with the disciples. While Jesus and the three had been away, those nine other disciples, we learn, had a man come to them whose son was demon-possessed and they tried to cast out this demon but had failed. The situation is interesting because just a few weeks prior to this, if you remember, in In verses 1 and 2, Jesus had sent his disciples out to preach and to heal. He had put his power and authority upon them. And they came back and reported all of the things that they were able to do. And the other gospel writers tell us that one of the things they were doing during that time was casting demons out of people. And so here you have nine disciples who are being confronted with this man who has a demon-possessed son, who is literally trying to kill his son, and they are unable to do anything about it. Scribes are in the crowd, and they are beginning to use this as an opportunity to discredit the men and ultimately discredit the ministry of Jesus Christ. So this argument that Jesus walks into is all because these men were unable to do what they had previously been able to do. It's a terrible situation. The disciples were powerless to help a broken and begging man. The insidious religious leaders were stoking the fires of slander. The crowd was confused by it all because they had heard or maybe even seen Jesus do miracles, seen and heard the disciples doing miracles, and now no miracles taking place. And so there's great confusion. And in the midst of all of that, you've got a man and a boy who are still hurting. So there's lots Confusion and hurt and slander taking place. 
As Jesus walks up and looks into this situation and listens to this man's plea, I believe what we're seeing here is that Jesus felt like a stranger amid such unbelief. That's why he says what he says here, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Perhaps being on the mountainside and talking with Moses and Elijah from a humanistic standpoint made him long for heaven where everything was the way it's supposed to be. There's no faithlessness. There's no second guessing there. There is just complete and utter belief and trust and faith in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Moses and Elijah were not talking with Jesus on the mountainside saying, Jesus, we think your plan is not good enough or it needs to be tweaked in this way. No, they're there to encourage him and to bless him and to admonish him. It's Peter who's pulling Jesus aside and saying, that's not going to happen. So Jesus walks down the mountainside and he's troubled to learn that people are still not getting, still not believing and faithing into him. You know, as we look at this passage and we think about what's going on here, we can't help but wonder that if the disciples were able to heal the sick, if they were able to cast the demons out before, then why could they not do it on this particular day? What's the hang up there? This question puzzled them. It should puzzle us. Well, I believe their failure was not because they didn't try. They obviously tried to cast the demon out. I believe they did their very best. I bet they recited and copied everything that they had done before because that's what we do as humans, right? We we come up with a plan. We come up with a program. we, We copy what has worked in the past, and we try to implement and duplicate that for ourselves again. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. In the church world, many times we will see what God seems to be doing in a local church in a different context, and, and we will even believe and begin to think that we can package that up in a really beautiful bow and move it into our context and unwrap it and, and think that it's going to work here. That's not the way God works. And so why is it that they could not cast this demon out? I believe the problem was that they had subtly moved from trusting in God in faith, or trusting in God to faith in the process. I believe that they went out that first time fully under the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they walked in that power, and they walked in that authority, and they had great success, and so they thought that now they can duplicate that. So their faith is not in God, the faith is in the process that they had done before. Isn't that what we do? put programs together, we put things together, and we think, man, if we can just get this assembly line working, then the end product is the same, the same, the same. It's just generating the, 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 the product that we want. That's not what it means to walk by faith. When it comes to uh, our redemption, we can't just come and sit in a, in, in a church building and we listen to messages and sing songs and, and we think that if we do these certain religious things that the end product is a child of God that's fully walking in redemption and fully growing into spiritual maturity. That's not necessarily going to happen if there's no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his power to transform. You can't expect the end product to be a child of God. And so they're trusting in their own abilities, their past abilities. Their faith had come to rest in themselves rather than the Lord Jesus. You, you see, he had sent them out before. He'd sent them out in power and authority, but now they're resting in their power, their authority. They're relying on their experience. 
And I believe this is evidenced by the fact that every synoptic gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us no indication that when the man came with his son and began to request help for him, that they got on their knees and said, Father in heaven, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you touch this young man, that you bring healing to his body, that you release him from the demonic oppression that is overtaking him in every facet of his life. Father in heaven, we can't do anything. We're powerless. Our eyes are upon you. You heal him in, in the name of Jesus. You don't see that in the gospel writings. So I think it's cluing us into the fact that they're not trusting in the Lord, but their trust is in themselves thought simply because they had done it before, they would be able to do it again. And so here we see that in the Christian life, drift happens quickly. Drift happens quickly. And thankfully, Jesus gives a quick indictment as well. And Jesus walks into this crowd. He walks into this scene. He's standing amidst a, a faithless group of people. Thankfully, the Lord was included, has included this story for us in his word so we can learn from it, so that we can see what faith is and how to walk in it. And so the kind of faith here on display is a, is a spiritual faith. How do we know that? It's because de demonic oppression is a spiritual situation. It's a spiritual issue. We remember what the writer of Hebrews says about faith. It says, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the convictions of things not seen. And so let's talk about faith for the next few minutes. I want to share with you six truths about faith. Three truths of what faith doesn't do, three truths of what faith does do. First of all, faith does not seek a solution from among men. It does not seek a solution from among men. I don't want to be hard on this father this morning, so hear me right off the bat. I want to point out that he brought his son to Jesus' disciples rather than Jesus, though. I think we need to make that distinction here. Now, obviously, we know, because we're reading it from a 2020 historical position, we, we know that Jesus was not there. He's up on the mountainside. It's very possible that this man brought his son, hoping to see Jesus, hoping to meet Jesus, but Jesus is gone, and so all he has left are the disciples. That could have been a possibility, but the gospel writer does not tell us that. None of the gospel writers tell us that. So we can only go with what we, what the, the intention or the point of how this is constructed for us. So it's possible he came for that, but the gospel writers do not include it. So what we have in the gospels is that this man came and found men to bring a solution to his problem. And we oftentimes do that. As people, we seek solutions from others rather than going to God. And, and it, so it makes sense, I believe, to make this connection for us this morning. So when we're talking about spiritual faith, by its very definition, it can find no help within humanity. There's nothing that I can do to, to change the spiritual condition of your life. And there's nothing you can do to change the spiritual condition of my life. Now, we're to encourage one another spiritually, right? That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. But you cannot step into the dark spaces of my life that only Jesus' blood can redeem and do that for me. And so by this man bringing his demonically oppressed and possessed son to these disciples is a picture of humanity bringing their spiritual problem to humanity and expecting a spiritual solution. It can never happen. Men, women, boys, and girls are powerless against the spiritual darkness that holds people in bondage. And so this well-meaning dad, no matter how much faith 
he could have he had could not fix or get a fixer for his son because spiritual faith redeeming faith does not seek a solution from among men there's a second truth that I want you to see faith doesn't seek a solution from religion again I, I don't want to be harsh on this man I don't want to be harsh on this father but by going to the disciples he did not ex exercise spiritual faith now you say, well, pastor, does that mean I can never come and talk to you? I can never go to a, my small group leader? I can never talk to one of our elders or deacons or a friend in the church about spiritual matters? That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, there's nothing wrong with coming to these disciples. If they're coming because they know the disciples are going to point them or him to Jesus Christ. That's the difference. If you're coming to me or, or, or another brother or sister or you're coming to the Christian faith itself, the Christian religion itself, and you're expecting this, this wonderful movement in your life, but it's devoid of the power of God, you sh you're going to be sorely disappointed. Religion can never help you. The disciples' relationship with Jesus and their early ministry uh, preaching and healing gave them this reputation to be religious leaders. I think we get a clue into this because the Father's request of Jesus can really speaks to this. He refers to him as teacher, right? He doesn't come to Jesus when he sees him walking up and say, Master or Lord. He says, teacher. He recognizes him as a religious leader. He, he has some sort of religious credibility, so he went to his disciples, hoping to find help from these religious leaders. He had heard the stories. He had heard the stories of people being healed and freed from demonic possession. And so when the disciples did not live up to his expectations based upon what he had heard, he was disappointed. And then the scribes pick up on this, and they began to use the situation to cast verbal stones at Jesus and his ministry. And so the whole situation, I believe, highlights that spiritual faith, redeeming faith, doesn't seek a solution from religion. We shouldn't seek a solution for the, 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 the emptiness in our lives, the depravity that we have as sinful, fallen creatures. We should not seek a solution from religion, that if I just go and, and sit in church, then, then, then I'll be made better. Or I'll be made different. Let me tell you this morning, you can sit in every worship service that we have till the day you die, and you'll never be different unless you listen to the message of the gospel and in faith believe on Jesus Christ. But by simply being religious, you'll never have a solution to your problem. You see, this whole scenario shows us that the religious exercise devoid of the person and the power of God is futile and it's empty. It's a third truth, and it's this. Faith does not seek a solution from outside God's word. The story here, what we read is that the boy's father and the people in the crowd were not the only ones confused about spiritual faith. We have already seen this, and I believe this is what Jesus is putting this in the Word of God for us. Or the reason he's putting it in here is so that we see that it wasn't just these members of the crowd. It wasn't just the boy's father who were confused about what spiritual faith is. The disciples were struggling as well. Remember what's happening, what's been happening up until this point. Jesus has explained multiple times that what's going to happen. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend. He's been giving clues, not just clues. He's been explicitly telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen. Remember, we looked at it a few weeks ago. 
Matthew's gospel includes the fact that Jesus was pulled aside by Peter and Peter rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus turned it around and rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan. Your eyes, your attention, your focus is not on the things of God, it's on the things of men. See, they're looking at this whole scenario that Jesus is painting for them through the lens of humanity, the the lens that says, this is what I think the Messiah is going to be like. This is what I expect the Messiah to do. And Jesus is saying, this is what the Messiah is going to do, and this is who the Messiah is. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to be buried in a tomb for your sins. I'm going to be raised from the dead for your sins. The disciples refused to believe this. Once again, they're confronted with this new reality in their spiritual paradigm. Jesus would be going to a cross. Verse 30, or verse 44, it says, he pulls them aside and says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Everyone around them is marveling over this young boy who's now sitting there in his right mind. He's coherent. He's not acting like a crazy fool anymore. He's not throwing himself into the fire. Here's a man who's sane once again. They're marveling over that. Jesus pulls the disciples aside and says, boys, I don't want you to marvel so much on that. But I want you to understand that because faith is so powerful that when you faith into me, I can change lives. But that's going to require me going to a cross. So you've got to believe me. You've got to trust me. You've got to understand that I know what's right and I am in control. And yet they couldn't perceive it. They had these preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was or who he was and what he would be like. The Bible tells us here, Luke tells us here, that they did not understand this verse 45. And it was concealed from them. How are we to understand that? I don't believe we're to understand it from the standpoint of Jesus is trying to keep them in the dark. I believe what we're to see here is their disbelief kept them in unbelief. They refused to believe what Jesus was saying. I mean, he's flipping the lights on, right? Hey, guys, this is where we're headed. We've been in Galilee. We've been hanging up here for a long time. We're headed south. We're going to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? A cross. What's in Jerusalem? A tomb. What's in Jerusalem? My blood being shed. What's in Jerusalem? Life for you. Jesus, that doesn't make any sense to us. You're the Messiah. You're the, you're, you're the one who's going to lead us into victory. You're going to overthrow Rome. You're going to get us back to our glory. Boys, that's not what the glory is. The glory is in the kingdom. The glory is to come. The glory is not so insulated and isolated to, to this one little thing in the history books. It's a global kingdom. It's an all-time kingdom. So their disbelief kept them in unbelief. You know, the Bible today still calls each of us to find life in Jesus through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The gospel has not changed. Jesus said this of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' teachings reveal to us that spiritual faith, redeeming faith, it never seeks a solution outside of God's word. Let me give you a fourth truth. Those are three things that it doesn't do. Let me give you three things that it does. Here it is. Faith seeks the face of God. I've been a little critical of this father, so let me be a little positive and a little uh, undergirding of him. Let me talk about something he did right. You see, when Jesus came walking down and got close to this crowd, what does the father do? He comes to Jesus. In fact, 
Other gospel writers tell us that the whole crowd came and ran to Jesus. And so it's a beautiful picture of spiritual redeeming faith. They saw Jesus and they sought him out. They recognized this is the one who has the answer. This is the one who can speak into my situation. This is the one who can give me life. And so they sought him. That's what faith does. Faith recognizes that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Savior and runs to him. Seeking redemption. Spiritual redeeming faith is exercised when we seek the face of God. It's exercised when we seek him rather than other people, rather than religion, rather than making a way for ourselves. I love how Jesus said it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come to me, all who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. This morning, have you sought the face of God through the person of Jesus Christ? It's just to a fifth truth. Faith places the need in the hands of God. Again, the boy's father models faith for us. Now, it's an imperfect faith, as all of our faith is, but it's a spiritual faith. He placed his son in the hands of Jesus. He placed his son and the soul of his son in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledged that he had no other hope. And is that not where we need to be in our own lives? That when we understand our sinfulness and our depravity and and the condemnation that we're under because of that sin, do we not recognize that we are undone? That we have no other hope? Religion is not a hope that we can believe in. It's not something that can help us. People can't speak in and change our lives. We can't listen to enough TED Talks and and gurus to, to kind of motivate us to where we need to be. No, we're dead on the inside. We need life there. And that life only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I speaking to a a live bunch this morning? Are you with me? Thank you, Jan. One person's with me. No one's sleeping, but I need something today. Now, as fallen and depraved people, our default position is to seek help, to seek aid from anyone and everything outside of Jesus Christ. We'll run to our family. We'll run to our friends. We'll lean on our own intellect and our abilities. We'll seek help from religious systems and philosophies. And, and I don't want to say that that's all bad. But when we exhaust every resource available and we're still left enemy empty, do we not need to understand that those things are futile and are helpless. They can do nothing for us. And so why do we run to those things instead of running to God? Or why do we, when we run to someone else and they actually give us the truth and they say, Jesus is the one who needs to help you. Jesus is the one who can only help you. And we say, no, 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 I don't want that. And we chase someone or something else. Why, why do we do that? It's because it's the default position of the depraved heart. We're in rebellion against the Lord. And so if the stories that we're reading here in Luke's gospel are true, and they are, then this course of action literally makes no sense. So I want us this morning to see ourselves in the story. We're the disciples who are looking at the situation in our lives, and rather than believing Jesus, many times we're saying, no, Jesus, it can't be that way. And Jesus says, no, you got to trust me. you got to believe in me. you got to believe on me. Luke has shown us over and over again that mankind is powerless to save and to heal, and yet we continue to refuse to place our needs in the hands of God. The answer for this can only be rebellion. 
Men, women, boys, and girls, we are all living in rebellion against the God who created us. We're enemies and haters of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And so when a person refuses to place his or her faith in the, and spiritual need in the hands of God, it's an exercise of rebellion. But when we begin to understand that God is sovereign and good and gracious and kind and long-suffering, and he's seeking me out, and we in faith turn to him, and we believe what he said in his word, and we believe on him based upon what he's done according to his word, then when he meets us and we meet him, great transformation takes place. Not because we did anything. But because God in his goodness and grace has done that for us. That takes faith to believe him when, we, when it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Spiritual redeeming faith brings the need to God and places it in his hands. What are the needs in your life this morning? What are the things you need to lay down this morning in our small group time? Man, I'll tell you, Jordan just led us in a uh, special time of prayer. Just what's going on in your life? Let's pray for it. And we just kind of went around the room and just spent an hour praying for one another and the needs in our families and our situations. And, and, and I just, you know, I had an opportunity to pray in one of those times. And what came to my mind, what came to my heart is this the idea that God is sovereign and God is good. And many times in my life, that doesn't make sense. Because if he's sovereign and good and I'm struggling... How can that be? Either God's not in control or he's not good. And yet the Bible tells me that is not true. He is always in control. He always knows what's going on. He's never caught by surprise. And he's always infinitely good. And so it just means that in his sovereignty and in his goodness and by his providence, he's allowing me to go through a struggle probably for my own good. So I just need to faith into him. I need to trust him in that. We need to place our lives in his hands. It starts with our salvation. There's a sixth truth, and I need to hurry. <laughs> Faith believes the word of God. While the crowd is marveling, as I said earlier, Jesus reiterates the fact that he's going to be betrayed and, and killed. He wants his followers to know that his word reigns. He wanted his followers to know that it's fact, that it's law, that it's truth, that his word can't be deviated. He's saying, boys, in fact, Peter, you've tried to tell me this is not going to happen, but when I say it's going to happen, it happens. Now, in my home, I try to act like that hap- that's the truth. I try to act like that's the law, but we all know I live in a house full of women. I just say, yes, ma'am, and move along, Right? They're like, well, I don't know if you should be the pastor of this church because uh, you don't leave your home well. I don't know. That's not entirely true, but you know how it is. But when it comes to Jesus, his word can't be thwarted. It cannot be replaced. Jesus here speaks a word and the demons cast from the boy. I I love that. He's healed, verse 42. His word is power. It's authoritative. Therefore, when it comes to spiritual redeeming faith, we must approach the Lord according to all that he has said. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, and so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I need to know God's word and believe God's word. And when I believe it and read it and stake my life upon it, it builds my faith, right? Jesus doesn't demand incredible Large faith from us. He just says this. 
If you have the faith, faith of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, go jump into the ocean, and it does it. Small. He's not asking much from us, just to believe him, to take him at his word. Jesus here tells the disciples that he would die and he's going to be resurrected. He would be offered as a sacrifice for the penalty of sin. All of this took place, as we know, just as Jesus said. So salvation is only available through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. There's no other way to be saved from our sins but through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So spiritual redeeming faith is not a belief that we will be accepted by God based upon our merit. It's not a belief that we will be accepted based upon our religious convictions or based upon our religious sincerity, that we were sincere in our belief. No, it's none of those things. It's also not a belief that God's going to look past our sin, that he's going to look past our shame, that God is so loving that he says, I know you didn't really mean it. It's no big deal. No, everything you do outside of God's word, is infinitely binding upon your life. Infinite. Why do you think a person who rejects Jesus Christ suffers in eternal torment in hell? It's because they have sinned infinitely against an infinite God. It never ends. That's how bad our sin is. So let's not gloss over and think God's not going to think that much about it, that it's not that big of a deal, that let's not have that fight, kind of what we do in our homes, right? Some battles we will wage. Other battles are like, eh, let's set this one out. That's never the way with God. Every sin you have committed in your life, every sin you will ever commit, every wrong thought is enough to send you to an eternity in a devil's hell. Think about that. So let's understand the gospel. And what he's calling us to. So when it comes to faith, redeeming spiritual faith, we must believe the word of God. I just want to read Ephesians 2. I know I'm long this morning. It is the worship ministry's fault. (laughs) They planned the service. Listen to these verses, and I won't make many comments about them. But Paul says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is laying the ground for this is who we were B.C. before Christ. We were dead in sins, spiritually dead, cut off and under the wrath of God. Verse 4, here's the beautiful words of the gospel, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He's raised us up with him and he's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you see the gospel there? You see, the Bible is telling us that in your sin, you are spiritually dead. You're cut off. You're under the wrath of God. You're under the judgment of God. You are on your way to a devil's hell, and you deserve it. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Being rich with love has paid the penalty for your sin. He's made it possible for you to be forgiven and removed, that sin removed from you. I love how the the Bible tells us that that sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Infinite. Remember, you've sinned against an infinite God. Now God has infinitely removed that sin from you. Isn't that good news? Faith in Jesus and his sacrifice is the key that accesses, accesses this redemption. When you think about those 33 miners that were trapped in that mine for those 69 days and how they never lost hope during that time. Now, I've never interviewed either one of them, any of them, so I don't know if they had moments of despair. I believe they probably had their moments of despair underground for that long of time. But something kept them moving. Something kept them motivated. Something kept them hopeful. What was that hope? It came from the fact that they had faith in the ones who were above planning their rescue. When we think about that for ourselves from a spiritual standpoint, today we can have hope because we can have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he not only is planning our rescue, he's accomplished our rescue. And it's through his cross. It's through his shed blood. It's through the redemption that he now offers us. It's the verse 4 of Ephesians 2. You were dead in sins and trespasses, but God, rich in mercy, came to your aid. These men trapped below were not asked, and they were not asking themselves to believe in faith. They were not faithing into faith. They were faithing into a Process. They were faithing into a group of men and women who were working on their behalf to rescue them from below. And this morning, we're not asked to faith into faith, some abstract idea. We are asked to faith into the Lord Jesus, who is the anchor and the rock of our redemption. This morning, I just have one simple question for us. Are you tethered to that anchor? Is your life tethered to the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? that you've believed on him for salvation, that you've trusted him with the forgiveness of your sins. Your sin has been paid. It's been removed from your life. Now you're walking in newness of life. You're not perfect, right? I'm not perfect, but you're moving in the right direction. God is working in your life. Can you say that this morning, that I have faith into the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, we're going to have a time of response, and that's the first thing I would ask of you this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to come forward. I want you to give me an opportunity to pass you off to someone else who can personally walk with you through the gospel in about five minutes and to help you understand how you need to make that decision for yourself. Will you do that this morning? Maybe you're a Christian this morning and you just, you find yourself, you're relying upon your own abilities. You're kind of like these disciples saying, you know, I was walking with Jesus back then and so I'm just kind of doing what I've always done. But really you're walking in your processes, you're walking in your past accomplishments. You're not really walking with Jesus. And so this morning, why not you to come home? Why don't you once again rely upon the power and the authority of Jesus and the life of Jesus in you? So pray with me this morning. Would you stand to your feet if you would? We've been sitting a while. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and your sovereignty. Those two things don't always make sense to us. Life is hard and difficult, and yet they are. Sometimes the difficulties you allow in our life is the very goodness of God to open our eyes, to awaken us to our reality, 
Sometimes we got to smack our nose against the rock bottom of life to turn around and look up. So maybe that's happening in some lives in this room, some folks who are listening to us online. Pray that our eyes would be opened, our heart would be receptive, and this morning we would be able to exercise faith in Jesus. God, I pray for the men in this room. I pray for women who might have a religious background, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I pray through the Holy Spirit you'd call them to faith today. I pray for teenagers. We're so grateful for what you're doing in our student ministry right now with a number of teenagers just being sensitive to the gospel and responding with faith. Lord, I pray that you'd call others out. Pray the same for our children this morning. And we pray for a sensitivity, a receptivity to the Spirit's movement. For believers this morning who may be beginning to realize that like these disciples, they're kind of leaning back on past experience and really just going through the motions. God, you don't want to walk ahead of us with us trailing behind. You want us to walk in step with you. Arm in arm, linked to the Lord Jesus. It's there that the power is. It's there that the authority is. So, Father, maybe this morning there's some Christians who just need to simply acknowledge that. Lord, I'm at a guilty distance. Help me to get back in step. We have a few moments of just response this morning. May our hearts be tender. God, may they be receptive. Speak to your church this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Let's sing. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.